Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. My chat. My chat. One, two... One, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God. Attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergy. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest story ever told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got 
gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Another edition of Theology Matters, and I am your host, Devin Palu. We have a pretty good show for you guys today, pretty exciting show, as we continue our series on the Protestant Reformation, this being the month of October. We thought it would be very fitting to uh, spend a few weeks looking over some of the doctrines that define uh, what Protestants believe, as well as tackle many of the objections uh, that are leveled against uh, Protestants. So today, uh, we are going to be looking at the doctrine of sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. And it's one of the most misunderstood um, doctrines by both Protestants and Catholics. Catholics uh, and, of course, Eastern Orthodox and others will uh, level you know, a lot of uh, arguments against the doctrine of sola scriptura, uh, but a lot of Protestants, sometimes the way uh, they understand Sola Scriptura or argue for it, um, sometimes is not very helpful. And some of those criticisms are definitely legit. Uh, but we want to, to uh, show you guys how to answer some of these questions. And it should be, should be a good show. We're going to open up the phone lines and uh, we'd love to have some uh, Catholics or non-Catholics, whoever... Uh, maybe you're a Protestant and you have questions about Sola Scriptura, we are going to open up the, the phone lines and invite uh, your calls. Before we do that, though, just get a couple things out of the way. If you've not liked our page on Facebook, uh, you need to go do that because we have all of our podcasts there, and through the week we'll put different articles, videos, links up there. Uh, dealing with the issues of uh, theological and, uh, and apologetic issues. So we definitely uh, encourage you to go there. If you go to facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse, facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse, uh, we have, uh, like I say, a lot of our podcasts up there. We've done a lot of different shows. We've done shows on um, Mormonism. We've done shows on answering Jehovah's Witnesses. We've done shows uh, on demonology and the occult and the New Age. And uh, the people we get are always always experts in the field. I've had several grads from Biola as well as uh, my own school, Southern Evangelical Seminary. So the people that we get on are, are top-notch quality people. And as well as uh, as hosting several different type of shows uh, on apologetic issues, we've also done several debates. Um, in fact, the gentleman that will be joining us today, Nate Taylor, uh, it was uh, almost a year ago, it was in December, we hosted a debate uh, with him and Devin Rose on the issue of Sola Scriptura, which is fitting for our show today. We've also had the president of... Uh, the Atheist Society in Austin on, and president of the Atheist Experience, Matt Dillahoney, did a debate with John Ferrer, as well as a debate with Chris Date and Michael Willenborg on the issue of annihilationism, whether or not the Bible teaches hell is uh, eternal conscious torment, uh, as well as Mike also participated in the debate uh, between uh, the Mormon and Christian view of God. 
So we definitely want you to invite uh, your friends and, and look on that page, and there's a lot of good stuff on that page. So we'll go ahead and uh, we'll go ahead and move into our show. Let me go ahead and, and introduce our guest. As I said, he's he's actually been on the show uh, before. His name's Nathaniel Taylor. He's a graduate of Biola University and Westminster Theological Seminary and Talbot School of Theology. Uh, he has his, uh, I believe it's his MDiv and a Master's in Philosophy. And Nathaniel currently serves as ruling elder and interim at and pastor at Christ Church Presbyterian in Irvine, California. So without further ado, Nate, are you there? Devin, it's uh, good to be here and to talk about the issue of Scripture. Hey, man, it's always always good to have you on. Definitely uh, a lot of people uh, really enjoy listening to you and uh, very edified by your conversation. I know I always walk well, away in awe. <laughs> well, th- thank so. you, brother. I hope we, we get some good uh, questions today and we get our uh, critical minds working and thinking, and uh, hopefully uh, you, uh, you you take a few shots at me here and give me some tough questions, huh? Hey, that's the hope, right? That's the hope. <laughs> so tell tell us, Nate. Um, well, first of all, did I leave anything out of that introduction? I know you're you're going to be getting married soon. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And I'll be uh, closer to you. Uh, you're in North Carolina, or South Carolina? Which one is it? Well, I'm about 10 minutes from North Carolina. I'm about 10 minutes from Charlotte, so right on the border, oh, okay. but I'm in South Carolina. Well, I'll be a bit closer to you. I might be out there in Louisiana, so uh, the, in the uh, 18th is a wedding date, so it's uh, coming up. I'm a marked man for uh, 100 more days, and then we'll have to see what happens after that. <laughs> so well, it's, that's, uh, it's, that's gonna it's, be... it's definitely a blessing, uh, indeed, and I'm looking forward to it. And uh, So, uh, yeah, last time, uh, it was a year ago I was on the show, and... Uh, we talked about Sola Scriptura, and uh, it got me back here again. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, tell us, I guess, before we kind of jump into it, uh, why should we today care about why should we why, why should Protestants even care about the Reformation? Is it uh, is it even something that we should bother with today? Are the issues still something that divide? Talk to us a little bit about that before we get into it. Well, I mean, uh, so the Reformation propounded a philosophy, uh, a a way of looking at the world that was different uh, than what the Roman Catholic Church was propounding at that time. And uh, obviously there are issues to do how can a man be right before a holy God and the issue of authority and um, as it derives from God and how we know God and so on. And uh, typically people who, who tell me, oh, well, you know, I'm not really interested in religion. It's like, oh, so you're just not interested about the uh, most important things in life, I guess. Well, uh, <laughs> never really made any sense to me. If uh, God exists and it's a fact and uh, the Bible is his word and that's a fact, we should care very deeply about what philosophies say about it, how to interpret it and how to understand it. And so um, the meaning of life and why we're here and uh, how to be right before God and how we know God are just vitally important questions, and they're more important than, say, uh, you know, who won this football game and who beat this guy in this baseball game or whatever, you know, they're more important than any of those questions. And so um, we should care very deeply about um, our souls and our salvation. And uh, if the Protestant Reformation had something going on and it was 
the, the teachings of the Protestant reformers, they corresponded to reality and they were true, well, we should care very very much about the truth because it uh, pertains to our souls and to our development in life and how we're going to treat um, uh, our family and uh, our friends and even our enemies. So it, uh, it, uh, it relates to all facets, facets of life and it's a menial life question and uh, and the authority of where we know about God from. And that's and that's why I think it's so deeply important to know, okay, how do we know God? Is it, uh, is it through the church, infallible, and through the infallible scriptures, as the Roman Catholic Church uh, teaches? Or is, do we know God uh, through only one verbal written word, the, the scriptures? Um, and so that, that's, I think, a very important question. How, how deep is the divide still today? I mean, I know you, you have a lot of Protestants. Um, you know, James White has made the comment that a lot of evangelicals, uh, they're not Catholic because, mainly because of taste, because of preference. It wasn't because um, serious, do- they, they didn't see serious issues with the doctrine, but more or less it was just out of taste or, you know, flavor, kind of kind of their, their view of, of Catholicism, are the is the divide still deep? Is it still there? Is it still wide? Is it still worth addressing these issues? Well, I'm not a man of contradiction, but I'll say yes and no to that. <laughs> I'll explain why it's not a contradiction. <laughs> so the issue is is that there are people, and you know, a lot of times, you know, James White will point out, you know, evangelicals who don't really care about this divide. But, you know, the, the guilt is on the other side, too. There are Catholics who don't really care. I've met Catholics who are as Protestant as I am, which is, well, maybe not as Protestant as I am, but pretty close. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll say everything I'll say, pretty much, um, apart from denouncing the Pope, it seems. Even then, you have some, you know, some of them don't. Well, I, you know, I disagree with the Pope, but I'm still a Catholic. I've heard that probably oh, 20 times at least, if I'm a, if I'm a careful counter. But... Um, yeah, it's it, it is an issue with Catholics too because they, some of them are very apathetic, and there are more liberal and conservative wings of the Catholic Church. But I think, uh, to be fair, yeah, there are uh, more conservative Catholics or more by the book Catholics that uh, know their stuff, and you know, and and they I would I would say that they represent um, what you know the magisterium is actually teaching. So, but then again, you have Protestants, as you know, uh, White points out that are, you know, they uh, they. They don't want to be a Roman Catholic because of all the rituals. And, you know, these, these same people that go to Presbyterian churches, which I'm a part of, will see these rituals and they'll say, oh, that's just like Catholicism. I'm going to go back to the, you know, uh, this, this, you know, uh, evangelical church that's, you know, Pentecostal or something like this because they don't like the, the uh, liturgy, as it were. And so you, you, you have people who don't like it out of that sort of taste issue. Uh, and that's going to be true even of Catholics, you know, if you were raised in the Catholic church and you've not done much deep thinking about uh, Roman Catholicism, you're going to have that very similar attitude as a Protestant might have, who just likes, you know, um, the feelings and the music that you would have at a, at a, at a uh, say, a, a Baptist service, but would be totally uncomfortable with the high churchness of a uh, Roman Catholic service. And there's some Roman Catholic services, in fairness, that are not so high church either. So it, it's all over the gamut here, but it's on both sides, and um uh, you're going to have more conservative Protestants, uh, more fire-breathing Protestants that will have be, be deep in, in divides, and you'll have uh, uh, very conservative Catholics who um, will also have a very deep divide. And obviously the Roman Catholic Church does not teach sola scriptura, 
no matter how, you know, scripture alone, no matter what way you want to dice it up. And so because of that, you know, in, in fact, there will be a divide. Let me ask you this. I don't think I've ever got your take on this, but you have a lot of, of brilliant guys like uh, like uh, Peter Kreeps and Frank Beckwith, just brilliant guys, guys that I I have a lot of their books, and I, I mean, I, I learned so much from them. Uh, but they're, they're at one time, they're Protestants. And Catholics, at least a lot of the Catholics I know, like to kind of throw this in, in your face and say, you know, you have all these brilliant guys, and they're all going to, to Roman Catholicism. Just in your view, Nate, what is the reason, uh, or some of the reasons, it's speculating, uh, that you see uh, sometimes some of these well-established evangelicals like Beckwith and Kreeft and these other guys, um, they go they go back to Roman Catholicism. What do you think the reasoning uh, for that is? Just just your own opinion on that. Well, it's again all over the board on this. Um, I've known some friends who of uh, mine that have gone to Roman Catholicism for, you know, infallible authority reasons. They want to have an infallible authority, and they feel like Protestantism has all these disagreements, and there's nowhere in the Bible that teaches sola scriptura, and you don't know what books belong in the canon, and so on. A lot of when I've listened to Kreef talk, he seems to, to think that uh, he puts a lot into the aesthetics of Catholicism, how it's beautiful, how there's, uh, you know... Um, beautiful things, artwork in the Roman Catholic Church. And, uh, yeah, I, I think there is beautiful artwork there. I don't think it's appropriate for worship, obviously, but it is beautiful. Um, and so I, I think you see things like that. I think a lot of people are raised that Roman Catholics are, you know, the serpent of, of the devil, and, they, and, you know, they're just they're awful people. I think uh, Creep was raised that way, to think that way, to think that, you know, hey, you know, Catholics are just, just evil maniacs. And you talk to a Roman Catholic, and that's not true. They're very, you know, kind, generous people, as they're kind, generous atheists, too. And so, um, not that being a Catholic is the same thing as an atheist, but you know what I'm saying, is that people have yeah, various right. types of beliefs, and um, and uh, they are, uh, they, they can be very kind, and so on, and so it's not good to raise your children, then, demonizing, you know, a segment of uh, individuals that they're bad, and then they find out they're not bad, and then, you know, you kind of lose your reliability there. So that's, you know, a reason is the demonizations that occur, I think issues with authority. Um, I think a lot of, you know, young Roman Catholics I've met would want to say it comes down to um, a skepticism about authority and that the Roman Catholic Church is this firm foundation by which they can rest and hear, you know, a man say, thus saith the Lord, you know, and they need that. They don't like the sort of dead letter book. That's kind of the reasoning they'll employ. Now, as I mentioned before, it's kind of a, on previous shows, it's a kind of inconsistent skepticism when, when all well, when all is said and done, you know, given the study of the theory of knowledge and how we know things and what things are infallibly known and well, what things are fallibly known. And so um, it's an inconsistent skepticism, but that's what they'll say. They'll say that you can have this bedrock, this uh, pillar and buttress of truth that you can say, thus saith the Lord, this certainty, and you Protestants don't have that certainty. All you have is divide and disagreement and that's generally the line I hear a lot, and then the infallible church, and how do you know what books belong in the canon? How do you know that, you know, Peter wrote First Peter? How do you know that John wrote Revelation? You get these sorts of questions, and, uh, you know, this this is generally the tack you, you hear taken when uh, discussing with our, our Roman Catholic friends who have made conversions. And I just want to say, you know, I've learned a lot from many Roman Catholic analytic philosophers who are brilliant, you know, and there are brilliant um uh, analytic uh, philosophers who are also atheists and um, 
and there are deists that are analytic philosophers that will, you know, not be Christian and so on. And I've learned a great deal from them in terms of, you know, thinking about, you know, God's world and he, what he's created and so on. And, you know, there's a, a sense of common grace there that we can learn from people who disagree with us. And um, that can't be undermined. But I don't think that just because someone is smart that it, it, it suggests it gives credence to it because I've seen smart and dull people, you know, cross back and forth in the Tiber, people going to Protestantism and to Catholicism. So never fair to kind of tally it all up and said, okay, he, you know, this one's in, this one's in, so let's do a head count. And how many people are Protestants and how many people are Catholics and how many conversions? I know a lot of times uh, <laughs> in evangelicalism it's rather unfortunate. People use testimonies as a rather um, kind of a manipulative way to say, you know, I changed from this and so therefore this gets credence to my new beliefs and so on. So, you know, that has to be avoided. We have to just look at the arguments and be intellectually honest and open-minded and critically thinking about, you know, what's being put forth and find out God's truth, because all truth is God's truth. Very good. Very good. Well, I guess let's uh let's let's jump into this topic maybe. Tell us tell us what is Sola Scriptura. Well, uh Sola Scriptura what, what was that, Sorry. Devin? Yeah, I was going okay. to say that maybe we can get into some of the uh, misconceptions and objections. And uh, and what I'll do real real quick is about 6.30 and about, well, my time 6.30, depending where you're at. Um, yeah. In about 10 minutes, about 10 minutes, I will go ahead and, uh, and open the phone lines for those maybe who are wanting to call in and uh, and dialogue with our guests on this topic. Uh, the number is 760-542-3907. Five four two three nine zero seven. Let's let Nate kind of lay out what the doctrine is, and then we'll go ahead and, and open the, the phone line. So go ahead, Nate. Yeah, I'll just kind of give a brief definition of it, and then uh, I'm a Presbyterian, so as a good Presbyterian, I'll go to the Westminster Confession for a further definition. So I'll give an informal one and then a formal one. Then I'll go ahead and you know kind of you know give a biblical defense of it, a brief one, really brief, and then kind of go into what it's not, some of the misconceptions, and then we'll get into the uh, the hot button objections I'm waiting for here, so that'll be a lot of fun. So first off, a sola scriptura or scripture alone is that scripture and that scripture alone is the only infallible guide for faith and practice for the church. So it's the only infallible or the sole infallible rule or guide for the uh, Christian church today. Um, you know, when the apostles were around prophesying and they were, you know, speaking infallibly, thus saith the Lord, obviously, it, it, Sola Scriptura did not function in the very same way it did back then than it does today. So that has to be stressed. Um, and then to look at the Westminster uh, Standards, which I, uh, I affirm, and I think it's an excellent uh, a place to start, uh, a historic Protestant confession to... Uh, give an explanation of this doctrine. It's Westminster 110. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and the creeds of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined and whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture. So that's a uh, definition from uh, the Westminster Standards. Now, it is said very uh, very commonly that, well, so you're saying that we're only to go by the scripture now in the church today for faith and practice. There's nothing else, you know, that has that sort of infallible authority. Now, things infallible authority, as we'll get to, but there uh, is only one infallible authority, um, 
And where do you get this doctrine from? You know, they'll say, you're saying it's scripture alone is this, you know, divine source of God revealing himself to us uh, verbally and writtenly. This is the only source we have. Um, where do you find that in scripture? Because if it's not in scripture, right, then scripture alone itself is not taught in scripture. Would people say that's a self-refuting proposition? It's like saying I can't speak a single word of English, but of course, when I've spoken a single word of English, I'm speaking English. So it's it's just kind of self-referentially incoherent. It's ridiculous, people might say. Well, okay. So what passage teaches sola scriptura? And uh, as I uh, discussed in my uh, debate with uh, Devin Rose, it was 1 Corinthians 4, 6. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So, this word here for written is graphitai, and as I mentioned, the, the vast majority, and indeed almost every instance of a graphitai that's used in the Pauline corpus, is used as simply scripture. And so it's saying, don't go beyond scripture for this faith and practice, if you would read the context there. So, that's what's being stressed here, is that scripture is this only infallible rule, and it's not to be gone beyond in terms of a infallible rule. There's no rule that goes beyond it that's infallible. It is the only one. And uh, so, the, and another thing we see in uh, the scriptures, we look at Acts seven, uh, 17.11, and there you have a scripture having this supremacy, even over, uh, you know, the, the, the verbal words of the apostle himself, Paul. Uh, this is what's said in Acts 17.11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, the word of Paul. Uh, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So they were checking out Paul by scripture. And so that's very right. interesting that, that they had this final authority even when the apostles were around. And so uh, if that was true back then, how much more is that true today? How much more is that true today? Uh, that's a good point. I never, I actually, I, I never thought about that like that. That's a, that's a good point. They're even checking the apostles uh, with the scripture. Yeah, it's 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 very it's very powerful since we don't have apostles today. We have pastors who have fallible authority. But uh yeah, it's uh, something else. And you know, this is not to say that there can't we can't learn from teachers. Teachers in the church pastors have fallible authority and obviously we're to listen to the body of Christ and not be disrespectful to it and certainly that has an authority um in understanding and interpreting the scriptures. But you know, if if, uh, you know, one of the church fathers said that God doesn't exist or something like that or that Jesus was, you know, not a man and he wasn't fully man or whatever, he were to say that, uh, you know, Mary never existed and Jesus just popped out of thin air. Well, the final judge of that statement is going to be scripture. Uh, you know, so if someone says something absurd or, um, you know, not not in coherence with scripture, we are to go with scripture. It is the final ultimate authority. And there, there certainly is, you know, as I said, teachers and commentators and so on, and people in the church has authority, the body of Christ, um, elders have authority. And so, you know, it's not, it's not saying that, you know, go into the woods and, you know, read your King James Bible. You know, I've met people that say, well, I, you know, I was watching, um, not intentionally, of course, a Jimmy Swagger show, and there was a lady on there saying that, oh, well, you know what? I'm just going to go home. I mean, I don't like my church anymore. I'm just going to listen to you guys on the Internet. And, you know, they didn't say anything. They just, okay, okay. Well, that's not, that's not what sola scriptura means. You're connected to a body, to fallible teachers, to guide you through it that are learned in the scriptures. 
So we're not saying, you know, go home and in the forest with your King James Bible and, you know, you don't learn anything about, you know, from others. That's that's a, a rather arrogant way of approaching it. So we're not saying right. it also, to be clear, and this is not stressed enough, and I think people kind of run away with this one and say, well, you, you know, you're not supposed to reason or do anything. Um, we are to use our, our reasoning. We are able to use our reasoning, and we're able to uh, have God's general revelation. It says in Romans 1 that God revealed himself to all men. That's infallible revelation. And um, that's general revelation. That's not verbally written. Uh, it's not verbally given, written down, and so on. But that's that's general revelation. We know things about God through that. And First uh, Peter 3.15 says to give a defense for the hope that's within you. You're able to reason. You're made in God's image. You have cognitive faculties that are uh, produced mostly true beliefs and false ones, you can reason with uh, people. It also says in Romans 2 that the work of the law is written on your heart. We're able to know moral things, you know. Uh, Not every single moral application and moral law is written down in the Bible, but through general revelation and conscience, we're able to know these things. And so we're not denying that general revelation and reason can't be used because the Bible itself says to use those things. And so um, for that reason, then, it's not as restrictive as put. It's not solo scripture or only scripture, but sola. It's the only infallible uh, written word for us as Christians the church. There's no other infallible written authority other than Scripture in it for the church today. And as I mentioned, it's not applied, um, was not necessarily applied and instituted in the same way it was in the early church when the apostles and the prophets were in, as it is you know, today. So those are some points, I think, that need to be stressed. Oh, and as well as this one, because this is something I hear. Not every single thing is written down in the Bible, you know. We don't know, you know, what kind of sword Peter had when he was talking to our Lord. We don't know, you know, the you know, kind of sandals they wore, you know, I mean, what particular style. We we just, you know, we can make guesses and historical predictions and so on, but we can't know those things infallibly. And so not every single thing, you know, how to repair a carburetor, you know, how to brew good beer, you know, that's just not taught in the Bible, you know. Um no, so things that are uh, that are necessary for faith and practice, things that are essential to one's salvation, those, those things are uh, taught in God's word. And so, not every single you know exhaustive, meticulous detail is expounded in God's word. So, those are some general qualifications that probably should be brought out, you know, lest there be any uh, misconception. Yeah, I know you you go to um, what is it, an OPC church? Uh, I don't go to the only perfect church. I go to the PCA. There's an abbreviation for the PCA, too. It's pipes, cigars, and alcohol. A little more wholesome, I guess. So, oh, there you go. No wonder you're a part of that church. <laughs> oh, thank you, Devin. I appreciate that. You should join, too. <laughs> yeah, throw you under the bus there, you know. <laughs> That's uh, right. We, we have a caller, um, and I'm, I'm going to go to him, but real quick, Talk for a second um, about maybe the, the thing, you know, holding the Sola Scriptura. Does that mean we don't need creeds and we don't need um, some of those, you know, the councils, that kind of stuff? Take, take just a minute before we go to our caller and talk about that for a minute. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, so we would need creeds, um, obviously, to have unity in, the, in a particular body and to know, you know, what that church holds to, and those those uh, creeds would have fallible authority upon those communing members in the church. And so, uh, if you know the Westminster, if you know the PCA, for instance, were to add you know article in the Westminster Standard saying that you're not to believe that God existed anymore, or that we're not to celebrate communion anymore, 
then I would say that um, we are to leave that church, and um, you know, it's the scripture has authority over it. However, if it does correspond to the scripture, the church has inf- has a fallible authority to institute discipline and to bar someone from the Lord's Supper, the sacraments, and so on. And so, yeah, it, it has this sort of fallible authority uh, associated with it. So, I mean, the church has a fallible authority by which it points out, you know, creeds and confessions and so on that we are to hold to, and uh, they do have uh, binding uh, ecclesiastical authority upon us in a fallible way. Just like how a father has a fallible authority over his child, and just like how a husband has fallible authority over his wife, and and if that authority uh, is trumped, it's only to be trumped under the conditions which we say we'd rather obey God rather than men, as uh, the apostle uh, Peter says and John to um, the Jews that were persecuting them uh, in the first century when they were told no longer to preach Christ Jesus. So when the church tells us to do something detestable, we have to say we'd rather obey God rather than men, as a child should do to his father who gives him an unbiblical commandment, as a wife should do to her husband if she were to give him, or if he were to give her a uh, unbiblical commandment. All right. Well, very good. I uh, was telling one of my friends is actually um, he is the cousin of my brother's wife, and uh, we've been friends for for a few years. Good guy, and he is actually a Roman Catholic. His name's Hagen, and I was telling him about this show, and he said he wouldn't mind calling in and and uh, asking a few questions. So, without further ado, oh, and his name is Hagen. You said yes, yes, Hagen. Are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear us okay? I can. I can I can hear you loud and clear here, Hagen. Well, good. Well, first, uh, thank you guys for taking my call. Uh, it's been a oh, good yeah. show so far. I've enjoyed listening to both of you guys talk about the subject matter. Um, <clears throat> I don't know how much time I've got. But, take uh, as much time as you need, my man. We've got... Uh, I mean, we got an hour and a, hour and a half left. Um, uh, I'm not sure if we're going to have other callers or not. I hope so, but feel feel free. Okay. I'll let you know if, if we need to to move on or anything. But you you go ahead and and uh, talk with Nate. Okay. Yeah, I doubt I'll keep you an hour and a half. Um, <clears throat> it's all right. I might just introduce <laughs> that, myself a little bit. That was, that was bit. over exaggeration on my part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, as, as Devin mentioned, uh, I am I am a Catholic. Uh, I grew up Protestant. I spent most of my adult life as an evangelical. Um, <clears throat> I attended university and studied philosophy and religion for a while. But right. unlike you good gentlemen, I ended up going somewhere else with my life, and so I've had to kind of put my passions aside and turn them more into a hobby. But... Uh, <clears throat> anyway, what interesting? Yeah, what kind of got me to change my position on sola scriptura? Uh, as I mentioned, I was an evangelical. I affirmed sola scriptura for a number of years. But what ultimately made me change my mind on the subject wasn't, uh, you know, a lot of the things that uh, Nathaniel was mentioning toward the beginning of this program, but more my study of the scriptures themselves, and especially the early church, the formation of the canon, um, kind of the historical details uh, behind the books of the New Testament. And so I I feel bad. I I didn't really have a uh, 
any kind of a good response to Nathaniel, at least that I would be comfortable running with. He's a little more learned man than I am when it comes to uh, his arguments for Sola Scriptura. But I would like to try and explain my reasons for why I don't affirm it. So, ultimately, uh, as I said, it was my study of the scriptures and the historical uh, context surrounding the uh, production of the books in the New Testament, and also the views about the New Testament in the early church. Um, Those details, it seems to me, undermine the idea that sola scriptura is biblical, or, or at least that it ever existed prior to the Reformation. <clears throat> Sorry, I might have to grab a drink real quick. Not a problem. Not a problem at all. <clears throat> Thank you. <clears throat> so, anyway, most of the New Testament wasn't doesn't seem to have been written with the intention of forming a canon of Scripture. Uh, In fact, you know, most of it is a collection of letters uh, that were written to churches, such as the Pauline epistles, um, addressing, you know, theological questions or moral issues that had popped up in the local churches. And as such, the letters were written to correct those errors or to instruct the local churches on the matters they had inquired about. And then later on, of course, the letters were preserved and passed along to other churches because of their instructional value. But for instance, the passage that Nathaniel quoted from 1 Corinthians, uh, the first four chapters of Corinthians were written in response to divisions that had formed among the local church. If those divisions had never popped up, there's a good chance that the first four chapters of Corinthians never would have been written if that makes sense. And so it's not like Paul was writing those first four chapters of Corinthians with the intention of of telling us all and forming a written canon about, say, Sola Scriptura, is the verse he quoted. It was more, it's kind of a historical accident that those chapters were ever even written and preserved that depended on the historical circumstances of what was occurring. Right. Well, let me, let, me, let me kind of uh, clarify maybe some it's a misunderstanding and maybe a disagreement or even a misunderstanding about uh, God's providence. Um, I don't think anything's an accident. Uh, I don't think anything's determined. Nothing's lucky. Nothing's by chance. And so I would take it that the, uh, God, uh, according to Ephesians 1.11, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, uh, would bring about those circumstances um, by which those controversies in the church were such that they could be universally applied to believers of all ages and that those circumstances would be beneficial for the believers back then as well as believers for all in, uh, all ages. And God caused and, and uh, providentially decreed all those individuals to have um, you know, the right sort of circumstances arise to where they end up addressing issues that weren't just beneficial for the Church of Corinth, but beneficial for the entire Church of Jesus Christ. And so, in a sense, then, that already assumes that there's no uh, providence behind this, and that already assumes the falsity of sola scriptura from the outset. And in a sense, it uh, tends to be begging the question. Now, of course, if there's a biblical argument for it, uh, then, um, you know, that that would be a different story. But, I mean, that, that would be an explanation that one would have to give of those events if one already thought that, for instance, the Bible taught against sola scriptura or that 
it was not, uh, you know, a biblical doctrine and so on, then in which case you could give that explanation. But uh, I would actually maintain the Bible does teach it, and uh, as such, just like in Acts 17, you have the uh, the uh, the Bereans, you know, they they were checking out what Paul was saying with the Old Testament scripture. And so I think we can do the same today with teachers that uh, claim things. We can check them out by the New Testament and the Old Testament scriptures. So it's more than just historical accident. It's by the... Uh, providence of God as I would take it. And I would agree. I, I would object to your saying that I'm begging the question because I, I'm not assuming that soul scripture is false. I'm trying to make an observation about the mindset of the early church and the apostles, of whether the apostles were themselves trying to form a New Testament canon. Now, if, if we're supposed to affirm sola scriptura, then presumably they would want to form a New Testament canon. Their intention would be to form a New Testament canon for the early church. And so if it turns out that a lot that the apostles were not themselves writing these epistles with the intention of forming that canon, it makes one wonder how they expected the uniquely Christian contribution to theology to persist other than an oral form. Does that make yeah, sense? and the way I would take canon, just to be clear, is uh, I would take it to be, um, it would be the set of all the inspired scriptures. And so I don't, I guess I'm a little confused as to what you mean by they weren't intending to write a set of, of, of scriptures when they seem to have knowledge of other scriptures. Uh, I think a good example is Second uh, Peter 3, when uh, Peter recognizes that there are other scriptures and that they distort Paul's. Um, words that they do to the other scriptures. So obviously the apostles recognized there was a set of infallible scriptures, and they knew about them. Um, now, as to whether they, they knew every single meticulous detail about that, um, you know, w- would be another question. I think, it, I think it's a question that could be answered, because I think in Daniel 9, we see a cessation of prophecy occurring. There's a sealing up of prophecy that occurs in Daniel 9. And uh, that is uh, fulfilled, according to Matthew 24, in the, in the generation of the apostles. The generation of the apostles. And so the apostles, I would say, held that view of Daniel 9, I, I would take it, and they held uh, that interpretation of Matthew 24. And they would say that, okay, there are sets of scriptures that exist, and that these, these, these scriptures no more will be written after this closing up of Revelation, where 1 Corinthians 13 says there'll be a completion of prophecy. There'll be... Um, you know, it says tongues will cease and prophecy will cease, but there will be a completion of prophecies that occurs. And so they knew that was occurring, you know, um, and that that would be sealed up, as Daniel 9 says. And as Ephesians 2.20 indicates, um, the foundation of a church is laid by the apostles and prophets. So I would say they, ha- they had to know in some sense that they were, that there was going to be the sealing up and this ending of prophecy and that the prophecy was going to be around for a limited amount of time. And so to lay down and to really put in writing, as it were, the word of God, which, which Paul recognized in Thessalonians. He says, I'm not just speaking the word of men. I am speaking the word of God to you. And then as a result, that, uh, that would kind of tip it off to me. But, yeah, they did have some idea, given Daniel 9, 24, uh, Matthew 24, and 1 Corinthians 13, and the recognition of other scriptures. They had to know this was occurring. So I would say the scripture does uh, provide uh, inferential support of that. Yeah, that's a lot to respond to. Um... If, if you don't mind, I would like to take things a little bit slower. Uh, I can't, I can't okay, remember sure. yeah. 
you know, to respond to 15 different verse references. You know, I mean, I, I don't mind taking things a little slower and addressing things one at a time, but like a whole case is, is kind of hard. Right, um, and, and you know, I, I'm just I'm just giving you like this big, you know, one one of many standard Protestant responses to these yeah, scriptural yeah. arguments, and and so this is the scripture we we provide to do this, and. You know, I, I do think you hear from Roman Catholic apologists that this hasn't been done, and well, I mean, I, I think frankly, I've I, I provided a good response. Now, obviously, uh, maybe you might you know criticize my case, and we can discuss that. So, feel free. Yeah, to do that. yeah, I, I understand. I understand. I'm just trying to you know make it make it more manageable for me, so I can okay. address your points you know as best as I can. Sure. Uh, you know, for example, you you bring up uh, uh, Peter uh, recognizing Paul's authority. There are two issues there, and I'm not sure it contradicts the observations that I made about Paul's epistles. Okay, Peter recognizes Paul's authority, but but Paul recognizes Paul's authority. It, the question isn't one of whether or not the apostles recognized apostolic authority, or even whether whether Peter could recognize that Paul's writings were authoritative and thus scripture. The question that that I'm trying to raise is again their mindsets. Was Paul trying to produce scripture? Were, do Paul's letters in any way show that the New Testament writers were forming a canon of the New Testament? And, and I'm using the canon, you know, in a in a more limited sense. There, I'm referring just to the books of the New Testament. Okay. They, were they forming a New Testament contribution to the scriptures? Okay, and and Paul's letters, they they do have this sign of being a historical accident. Now I'm not saying that there's no divine providence involved. I would agree with you a hundred percent that there is. But again, it's about the mindset of the apostles. If Paul is trying to teach us sola scriptura, but at the same time, he never seems to be trying to produce scripture, then how else did he expect for the Christian contribution? To persist in the church. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I would say. The, oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were asking uh, just, me a question. Just, I'm just, just, apologize. Uh, go, go ahead, Nate. I'll let you respond. I was just going to say, uh, maybe Hagen, can you can you define what you, what you understand as what sola scriptura is, just so we're not using the same term and you guys are talking past each other. Yes. Yeah. I, sola scriptura, as I understand it, is that. Scripture alone is the final authority when it comes to disputes on matters of doctrine. Um, the church, for example, like like Nathaniel uh, acknowledges, has some authority, but it doesn't have an authority on a par or, or alongside Scripture. It's it's a different kind of authority, and the and the church itself is subject to tradition. But but then where it's an individual thing as well. If, if I read the scriptures and I get something out of it, then I'm attending a church, and I think that the church is being unscriptural, then I have that right to, and, and I should, I, I would be obligated to leave that church and try to find one that is more in line with well, the scriptures. The, the, yeah, and the thing is that can be done in the Roman Catholic Church as well. If you find that the Roman Catholic Church doesn't line up with tradition and uh, does not... Uh, correspond to the uh, Word of God or to what it was taught in, you know, the second, third, or fourth century, or well, very early not, writings. Not, then, not then, really, then you, because you could, we do you have could, you a hierarchy leave in the church. 
It's not right. You can leave, you can leave that hierarchy and go to the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Vacantis, the, um, the Watchtower Society. Uh, there's numerous uh, infallible Pentecostal uh, cults, and there's also uh, yeah, but, I don't but know then this, again, but I've exalted my own take on it above the hierarchy of the church, and it, you couldn't do that within the Catholic hierarchy. You would you would have right, to you throw have out to make, the Catholic hierarchy and say, "I'm just going to go join another church." I, oh, I understand, but you would have to make the decision. So, when the, if the Catholic hierarchy said something that was contrary to tradition, if they said something that was unreasonable, like there are square circles that exist, or you know anything like that, or that. The, the Pope is really a giant chicken or something. Not that he, I'm just giving weird examples. You know, if they said something absurd, then it would be, you know, you would you would assess that using your mind, and then you would leave to go to the Eastern Orthodox Church, which is like I think seven or eight least different uh, factions in there that are that are claimed to be infallible, and then you or you go to um, the Sede Vacantis, which is where uh, ex Roman Catholic apologist uh, Jerry Maddox is at. He's uh, he holds to a more traditional uh, older version of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, and so the, the seat is vacant. Or you could go to numerous, as I said, Pentecostal infallible uh, cults, whichever. You know, the point is that you use your mind to decide. Okay, it's not the East, it's not the Sede Vacantis, it's not you know the Mormons, it's not the Jehovah's Witnesses. You use your mind, just as I use my mind, to assess whether or not the authority is correct. And that's my point. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. My, okay. What I was trying to do is more just define how I understand sola scriptura. I wasn't trying to say oh, you know, oh, sola okay. scriptura. Oh, okay. Okay. I, I apologize for that. Then I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. <clears throat> Nate, so, I'll let you go ahead and respond to. Uh, I didn't mean to get, to get you guys derailed. I just wanted to make sure that the, we're both using the same work and definition. Did you want to resp- respond to what he had said previously before I had? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, about the Paul and their intention. Oh, yeah, again, and just to, to bring this up again, the First Corinthians 13 passage and the, and the Daniel 9, I think Paul was, you know, he was under uh, a very rigid uh, school of Judaism that knew the scriptures, probably Old Testament scriptures, probably better than I did, uh, do. Uh, so he read Daniel 9, I'm sure Paul did, um, and he ties, uh, I think, um, would, would have probably knew Jesus' teaching. He knew it better than we did because he makes... Uh, you know, citations of Jesus' teaching, they're not even the Gospels. Um, so he, he he would have known that, yes, there was a sealing of a prophecy that was occurring, and he would have known, uh, since he wrote 1 Corinthians 13, I take it, um, that there will be a completion of prophecy. He says that prophecy is going to cease, and that tongues are going to cease, which is another form of prophecy, another mode of prophecy, if you like, and that there will be special knowledge, uh, prophetic knowledge that ceases, and so this this uh, cessation occurs when there's a completion or a uh, uh, a perfection of prophecy, as it were. And at the time, there was only partial prophecy, which is why people spoke in tongues and had prophecy back then, because they didn't have the whole scripture. They didn't have the whole enchilada. Uh, and so as a result, uh, they had to have verbal uh, prophecy spoken to them, since they didn't have, you know, I mean, the Corinthians probably didn't have Galatians. They didn't have... Jude, and so they needed prophets to give them God's word to help them form a body of the church. And so Paul knew about that time period that was occurring, he writes in 1 Corinthians 13, when the church would be more mature. And so I would say, contrary to what is said, yeah, Paul Paul knew. Paul, Paul knew about this stuff. Paul knew that there was going to be a, a, a finishing off or a perfecting of the canon or a completion of prophecy, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13. So I would say the apostles, 
uh, were very aware of this, and uh, I think the evidence in Scripture suggests this. Hello? I didn't yeah. know if you had anything else yeah, to add to that, Hagen, or... Yeah, yeah, I guess I'll go ahead and respond. Um, <clears throat> now, what I brought up with Paul's epistle, that's just kind of one example of the point that I was trying to make. You know, for for instance, that the first four chapters of, of Corinthians were more written to address local problems than with any kind of an expressed intent, at least, to to form a book of the New Testament. Okay, that that's just kind of one example. I, and I would say that the same theme, this the same general tendency that in the early church and in the other books of the New Testament, you do get this impression that they weren't explicitly trying to form a, a New Testament. Uh, so, for example, with, with the Gospels, the Gospels carried on, the Gospel story carried on for decades before most of the Gospels were even written. And you have passages like in Luke uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where he says he's, he's writing this Gospel to draw up an account of the things that were handed down to us. Okay, so so Luke, after the fact, after all of these Christians have been taught and, and brought up in the, in the oral tradition, Luke recognizes the value of write, of of making a written record of it, and then writes Luke Acts. Okay, but the the apostles themselves never really did that. Uh, for the most part, when they did, it was it was you know, decades later, but what, it, it, two of the Synostic Gospels were actually written by disciples of the Apostles. There doesn't seem to be a push on the part of Jesus or the Apostles to form a written scriptures. For decades, it carries on as just oral traditions, and what written records we do get are, again, largely produced by, well, Paul can't get to this church and speak to him, and so he writes him a letter addressing the questions that they asked him. Or the disciples of the apostles recognize the value of retaining a written record of the gospel narrative. So then they sit down and they, and they write it down, they record it, they do their historical research like Luke did. And it, it, it seems to me that, you know, you, there are certain verses, I can see where you're, you're pointing at Daniel and you're pointing at 1 Corinthians 13 and and saying, you know, well, Paul is going to recognize that, you know, prophecy is coming to an end. Well, well, I agree, but that's not sola scriptura. That doesn't really prove that scripture alone is the authority. It What it proves is that, you know, Paul recognizes, yeah, there will be an end to prophecy. But regardless, Paul doesn't, doesn't show much of a, a, a desire for himself or the other apostles to form well, I, I guess I'm not really. Uh, maybe I'm not understanding the full force of your criticism here. Maybe I'm misunderstanding. I'm not sure which. But the thing about uh, Paul and about you know what he was saying is, yeah, I never said that. You know, in First Corinthians 13 and Daniel 9 are the proof for sola scriptura. I said First Corinthians 4, 6 and uh, Acts 17. I think also Matthew. 15 are proofs for Sola Scriptura. So I wouldn't say that that in and of itself is, is, is a proof of Sola Scriptura. Um, so uh, that's that's not what I was claiming, but I would I do claim that there are verses that teach that. So to be clear, I, I'm not really saying that. 
Now, um, to say that, that, that Luke, these oral traditions were going on, you know, before Scripture was written, and that's why they had to have prophets and apostles to infallibly speak to them on issues during that time, because for a good amount of time they didn't have uh, Jude or Second Peter and what have you. But that doesn't prove that they weren't, you know, going to be intentional at some point at forming a canon and a God fitting. Uh, I just don't see how that logically follows at all. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not even seeing any strong inference pattern here that would suggest any form of an argument going on here. And but yes, Luke is aware of historical circumstances. I understand that. But you know, uh, Paul and Timothy calls uh, quotes from Luke scripture. So yeah, it wasn't historical recounting, but it was also an inspired uh, historical recounting. And so um, it just seems to me that. I'm not sure what, what argument you're trying to make here, and if it is, it's a very weak inductive argument, certainly not strong enough to overturn these passages on sola scriptura and justification by faith alone. If this is an argument you're giving, it's a very weak inductive one. It's not, it doesn't carry real, as I would see it, uh, intellectual force. And very, If it is a good argument, it's very subtle and hard to really discern what's being said here. And I'm just being honest and upfront about what, what I think okay. about the merits of the argument being given. So unless I hear like a clear you know, step-by-step argument that's given. I don't really know how to respond to this in the first place. Let let me summarize my argument then. Okay. Because I I see where you're coming from. I I don't know why you brought up sola fide. I haven't said anything about sola fide. Oh, I I brought it up because I'm saying that when you have weak inductive arguments, then those are easily defeated by stronger considerations. And I think the evidence for sola fide is very strong. Obviously, I think the arguments for predestination are very strong. So if a church taught against it, um, I would have a defeater or a reason to doubt that church, uh, especially given a weak historical argument oh, like oh, this. Okay, so, but, but again, that's kind of bringing up peripheral details that yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it moves things forward. You know, especially if we already have some confusion. I'm just. I'm, I'm not sure that you know bringing up things like that really helps. Uh, all right, and, and 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 that was just an encouragement for you to get to, to a stronger form of argumentation that we can deal with, because weak inductive arguments, I think, are not going to be di- dialectically effective against uh, Protestant people uh, who, well, you know, know what you're okay, talking again, about. Okay, let again, me, let me clarify, though, because I, I wouldn't say I'm making a weak inductive argument. What I'm, what I'm trying to do is demonstrate that if you look at the historical details, your claim that, that Sola Scriptura was there at the time of the Apostles just I know, I, 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 never, I, I never said that. I never said it was the time of the Apostles. Well, you, it doesn't apply, but if it's taught in the Scriptures, presumably, if First Corinthians, for example affirms Sola Scriptura, then presumably it's affirming it to the original audience, the original church right, right. in it, 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 it's giving It's giving an indication about the future state of the church. But I, I didn't say that that's not, that doesn't follow from that, that Sola Scriptura as it's practiced today was taught in the early church. So that's not what I was saying, just to be clear. Okay, so you, you wouldn't say that Sola Scriptura as it's practiced today is taught in the early church? I, uh, James White doesn't, R.C. Sproul don't, doesn't think that, and neither do I. I don't really know anybody who thinks that. Okay. Okay. Could you clarify that? Just I, I, I'm afraid I might be misunderstanding you. Oh yeah, that, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. So most, I mean, I don't know any Protestant that says Sola Scriptura was always around. I, I, as it's practiced today in the church, I mean, there's prophecy. Uh, that's not Sola Scriptura. I would say Pentecostal churches are in fact not practicing Sola Scriptura as classically uh, understood. So yeah, I would, I would say that yeah, that you talk to any. Protestant worth of salt, and he'll tell you, "Hey, you know, uh, we don't, we don't, we didn't hold to soul scripture as it's practiced normatively today for the church. It's for a post-apostolic prophetic age that 
when the canon's sealed. That's that's when Sola Scriptura begins. And I think the applicational uh, value of that can be found in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, and in Acts 17. Okay, so so in other words, you would say that content-wise, Sola Scriptura is there. It just doesn't apply uh, to the circumstances present when 1 Corinthians was written. You know, it, it applies after the cessation precisely. of the prophecy. You got it. Okay, just just making sure I have you clear. Sure. So, okay, again, again, my issue with that. Well, when does when does prophecy cease? Seventy A.D. Okay, that's, that's I remember example. saying that from with your uh, debate with Devin Rose, but I just wanted that's to... that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so so prophecy ceases in seventy A.D. Paul teaches that after that time, soul scriptura kind of kicks into effect, right? Precisely. Okay. So, again, though, when we look at, at, at the history in the early church, nobody seems to get that out of the scriptures. Uh, if, if it's okay, I want to read a rather lengthy quote from St. Irenaeus. Sure, okay. and go ahead and read, read your quotes, and I have quotes after this to provide for you as well. Okay, yeah, that, that's fine. Uh, now, the the passage that I'm... I'm going to read. Usually it's, it's brought up um, in, in conversations about papal authority. Now, I'm not, I'm not bringing it up for purposes of papal authority. I'm bringing it up just to demonstrate the same claim that I've made, that in the early church you don't find this focus on sola scriptura. You don't, you don't find this idea that scripture alone is this kind of final authority. Okay. So, so here's here's Irenaeus. And now I've had to trim this down; it's several pages long, but I, I just kind of broke out the paragraphs that I thought were relevant. I, I would encourage okay. anybody to, you know, go and read the the full passage for themselves. <clears throat> so he says, "It is in it, it is within the power of all, therefore, in every church, who may wish to see the truth, to contemplate clearly the tradition of the apostles, manifested throughout the whole world." And we are in a position to reckon up those who were by the apostles instituted bishops in the churches and to demonstrate the succession of these men to our own times. Since, however, it would be very tedious in such a volume as this to reckon up the successions of all the churches, we do put to confusion all those who assemble in unauthorized meetings by indicating that tradition derived from the apostles of the very great and very ancient and universally known church founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul, is also by pointing out the faith preached to men, which comes down to our time by means of the successions of the bishops. For it is a matter of necessity that every church should agree with this church on account of its preeminent authority that is the faithful everywhere inasmuch as the tradition has been preserved continuously by those faithful men who exist everywhere. In the third place, from the apostles, Clement was allotted the bishopric. This man, as he had seen the blessed apostles and had been conversant with them, might be said to have the preaching of the apostles still echoing in his ears and their traditions before his eyes. Nor was he alone in this, for there were many still remaining who had received instructions from the apostles. In the time of this Clement, no small dissension, having occurred among the brethren at Corinth, the church in Rome dispatched a most powerful letter to the Corinthians, exhorting them to peace, renewing their faith, and declaring the tradition which it had lately received from the apostles. 
from this document, whoever chooses to do so may learn that he, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, was preached by the churches and may also understand the tradition of the church. And then with regard to Polycarp, he says, Gloriously and most nobly suffering martyrdom, departed this life, having always taught the things which he had learned from the apostles, and which the church has handed down, and which alone are true. He it was who, coming to Rome in the time of Anicetus, caused many to turn away from the the aforesaid heretics to the church of God, proclaiming that he had received this one and sole truth from the apostles, that namely which is handed down by the church. Then again, the church in Ephesus, founded by Paul, and having John remaining among them permanently until the times of Trajan, is a true witness of the tradition of the apostles. Now, this is from Against Heresies. And the reason I bring this quote up in particular, not only because of its length and how often he affirms the tradition ringing in their ears that was passed down through the bishops and through succession, but he's bringing this up to prove it's an argument against the heresies. Irenaeus is trying to settle disputes over matters of doctrine by appealing to the tradition. And in most of these cases, explicitly the oral tradition of what was passed down to other church fathers, Clement and Polycarp. And so again, when you look at the early church fathers, you don't find this emphasis that, the, that these things really need to be settled just by appeal or by the sole authority of Scripture. They're appealing to tradition. Okay. Um, just Okay, so I'm going to make about uh, brief comments about the passages you offered, and then I'm going to provide other quotes from Arrhenius and um, from against heresies here. And um, then I'm going to discuss some uh, quotes uh, throughout church history that show that soul sculpture was taught prior to the Reformation. So your quotes then. Uh, first off, elder and a bishop are interchangeable in Titus. So that just means elder. I'm looking at elders existing, and obviously elders pass on their authority to others. We do that in the Presbyterian Church of America. We pass on uh, authority, and so we pass on teaching. But uh, I would say I pass on traditions to others, but those traditions are not infallible. And so it's anachronistic just to read in that these traditions are infallible and they're able to trump Scripture. That is not said in that text at all. And so uh, it's completely just uh, read in the Roman Catholic beliefs. But actually, if you read Irenaeus against heresies, it is so fascinating that the very system he is condemning of the Gnostics is identical to what the Roman Catholic Church does. This is Irenaeus against heresies, book one. Such then is their system, the Gnostics, which neither the prophets announced, nor the Lord taught, nor the apostles delivered, but of which they boast that beyond all others they have a perfect knowledge they gather their views from the other sources than the scriptures. Other sources than the scriptures. When, however, they are confused from the scriptures, they turn around and accuse these same scriptures as if they were not correct or nor of authority, and that they are ambiguous, as Roman Catholic apologists claim, and that the truth cannot be extracted from them by those who are ignorant of tradition. Ignorant of tradition. For they allege, the Gnostics, that the truth was not delivered by means of written documents, but, as we hear so often, a living voice, a viva voice. And so here we see in Arrhenius against heresies, he's condemning what the Roman Catholic Church does. When we point out verses that show how the Roman Catholic Church is inconsistent with the gospel and inconsistent with scripture, 
they say, oh, well, it's in tradition. You show these quotes in tradition. They say, well, it's the living voice of the church. You know, it's an infallible authority. And so you actually never, you know, get any, it's just like, it's like a, you know, kind of running around the uh, a dog chasing its tail. So you, and it ends up at this living voice and back to appealing to the magisterium. It's um, just the church alone that has this trumping authority. But if we look at Augustine and uh, Basil of Caesarea, we read uh, about Sola Scriptura. If custom is to be taken in proof of what is right, then it is certainly competent for me to forward on my side the custom which obtains here. If they reject this, we are clearly not bound to follow them. Therefore, let God-inspired Scripture decide between us, and on whichever side be found the doctrines in harmony with the Word of God in favor of that side will be cast to vote of truth. That's in Basil Cessary in the Shape and Wallace Selected Library. And we also read um, from Augustine here, or I'm sorry, Cyril of Jerusalem. For concerning the divine and holy mysteries of the faith, not even a casual statement must be delivered without the Holy Scriptures, nor must we be drawn aside by mere plausibility and artifices of speech. Even to me, who tell thee these things, give not absolute credence, unless thou receive the proof of the things which I announce from the divine scriptures. For this salvation, which we believe depends not on ingenious reasoning, but on demonstration of the holy scriptures. And as Augustine says, uh, go back to first the book of the scriptures to check out doctrine. And as he says again, and inquire from the scriptures all these things. So, uh, and I'm going to just quote, quote with a final quote here from Augustine. This is a classic quote in my mind. I am not bound by the authority of Armium, and you are not bound by that of Nicaea. By the authority of the scriptures that are not the property of anyone, but the common witness for both of us. Let position do battle with position, case with case, and reason with reason. That's Augustine, uh, WSA, uh, Arianism, and, other, and the other heresies, and answering uh, Maximus in the uh, Arian book. So, I mean, I, I, I see the, the Bible teaching against what the Roman Catholic Church teaches today, and I also see many uh, Christian saints in the early centuries of the Church teach Sola Scriptura. Okay. I, I would respond by saying I I think what you're doing is every bit is anachronistic is, is what you're claiming that I'm doing. Okay. Uh, and, and not just as a matter of personal opinion. Okay. Uh, most historians, when they look at the early church, the oral tradition takes precedence over the written tradition for a long time. Uh, I want to quote again uh, a short piece. Well, it's it's part of a, a broader article. I, I can't pronounce her last name. Andre Toit, I believe. And she says, or he, whatever Andre is, Initially, oral tradition was used alongside and even preferred to the Gospels, but as the reliability of the former declined, and I, w I would disagree with her on this point, but I think her historical observations are correct, it was gradually replaced by the four Gospels. In First Clement, the Didache, Ignatius, and Papias, the living voice, as Papias terms it, of the oral tradition still enjoys preference, while in Polycarp's letter to the Philippians, the scale tips in favor of the written Gospels. Now, you you now let, let, you let me ask you a question though about voice, about, about, about the, uh, the, the you said that my my reading of them were just as anachronistic as yours were. Where, where does it ever say in those quotes that the tradition tradition was infallible? Does it ever say that? 
No, but it, it does say okay, that so, the, so, the so, early so church... In, in, my, in my quotes, though, it, it says that let us decide between the Scripture alone. Do you think Scripture is infallible? Yes. Okay, so here I actually have quotes that say Scripture alone infallible, and you just have tradition quotes. And so it seems to me that uh, I'm not reading it, reading, you know, the Protestant Reformation in these, but you're reading, you know... Trentian Roman Catholic Catholicism in well, these documents. Well, okay, there, we've got an, we've got another underlying issue here, though. Uh, tradition. Okay, uh, several times now you've brought up tradition, and I'm, it's not very clear to me what exactly you mean when you refer to Catholic tradition. If you wouldn't mind clarifying that before I say anything more. Um, well, I mean, they would want to say what's passed down from the church is developed, depending on what. Um, theologian um, you're talking about. Um, there have been theologians that argued that. But I don't have the Roman Catholic Catechism memorized offhand to me. Um, so if you want to provide a, a magisterium-like definition of tradition, you feel free to do that. Oh, okay. W- would, you, would you acknowledge this, though? I think this is pretty common knowledge, that when we refer to tradition, we mean apostolic tradition. Correct. I, I, th- I think that's, that's the Roman... Uh, Conception of it, yeah, I, I would definitely say they want to think. Okay, that. so sure. so insofar as that tradition is considered to be apostolic from the uh, from the apostles, would you acknowledge that that Paul's teachings, his oral teachings, would have been infallible, like his written teaching? Uh, yes, I would say that the apostle Paul's uh, verbal pronouncements were infallible as the scriptures were. Yes. Okay. Just the reason I clarify that is because the word tradition is somewhat vague, and a lot of people misunderstand it. And several things that that you've said in this conversation make me wonder I, I, whether you're mistaken with something Would, would, would you other say that Roman Catholic tradition is infallible, though? Well, I, w- I would say the tradition is its voice by the church. Yes, correct. A living voice. Yeah, as the Gnostic documents say. Yeah, if, it, if it's read that way by the church, yeah, that then it is infallible. Yeah, okay, that, that, that sounds and, about right. But then you you raise arguments again, like how if I'm if I'm judging the church by tradition, so I I look at the church and I say that the church is in error according to tradition. They said something goofy about the tradition, but th- but that's that's conflating two senses of the word tradition. When when we're talking about tradition, we're not talking about well, I just pick up and I read, you know, uh, uh, some writer from the early church, and then therefore, boom, that constitutes tradition. Okay. Right, and I, I think what we're getting at here is, is this issue of what kind of rules does tradition serve, and I think tradition serves a role, and so what I'm trying to point out is those texts can't count against Protestantism because Protestants would affirm that we're supposed to, the, the tradition and the brothers and sisters of Christ do have a fallible authority upon us, so they don't have the authority to overturn Scripture, that's for sure. And so, um, and I, guess I would agree, I, I, that, think, I, I think yeah. that produces a false impression again. Okay, you, you're pitting tradition against the scriptures, like it's either tradition or the scriptures. No, I, ne- I, I like never said that. If, if, I, if, I, if I say that they have a fallible authority and that we and we are to follow it, I'm obvious, and I hold the sole scripture. I'm obviously not pitting it against that. I'm just saying that they're distinct. You can be, uh, you can have distinction without antithesis, and so that's all I'm doing here is I'm just distinguishing between. Scripture and tradition, and they have different characteristics. Obviously, we are to follow tradition, yeah, and insofar as it, it corresponds with the uh, a clear reading of the Bible, I do, I do totally affirm that. And so, these passages then are not incoherent with a Protestant understanding. Not, nothing you've said in those in those passages comes even close to proving that there is going to be an infallible church, a living voice, 
that reads tradition and infallibly declares it to me. Not, not, nothing in that suggests that, and nothing suggests the, the distinguishing characteristics about that tradition. All we know about that tradition is that it was, it was a teaching of the apostles, and it was fallibly or infallibly, depending on how you read it, recorded by men. Nothing more can be derived from those statements you read. Okay, so, well, I, I think you're, you're, I mean, I, I appreciate that you that you feel that way, but we're kind of still in the middle of the conversation. I think it's early for those kinds of conclusions, okay? So, yeah, I, mean, I was just declare I'm wrong if you, if you like, but that, that doesn't, that's, that's, again, it's not going to help further our conversation. Okay. So, oh, okay, yeah, I, I was just, I was just, you know, giving you the sense of how I read those statements to which you could provide an adequate response to them or whichever you feel the best way to respond to it being, you know? Okay, so so would you would you agree then with what I just wrote, that in the early church up until about 140 A.D., the oral traditions took precedence in church teaching and in the writings of the early church fathers over the written record of the, the epistles of Paul and the Gospels? Uh, no, and I don't know any, any any quotes off the cuff that would indicate that. Okay, well, from what I can see, most historians agree on it, and from what I've read in the early church fathers, again, up to about well, then it, it, 140. Well, then if most, I'm, I'm, if most I'm, historians I'm agree, early. then it should be pretty pretty easy for you to give me a citation where it says that tradition trumps scripture or has precedence over it in terms of authority. Now, well, if I, it's I so obvious, maybe you can do that. Ago. I just did. Let okay. me read it again. Okay. <clears throat> Uh, let's see. Okay, this this is it's talking about the period from about 96 A.D. to 150 A.D. Mm-hmm. This period, demarcated by Clement of Rome on the one hand and Justin Martyr on the other, finds oral tradition increasingly replaced by the written Gospels. Okay, initially oral tradition was used alongside and even preferred to the Gospels, but as a re- reliability of the former declined, it was gradually replaced by the four Gospels. Okay. Now, and, and that's just an observation of of the writings in the church. Okay. But by, by the way, just to, just to clarify this, I was saying that okay, that how that quote's interpreted. First of all, it doesn't say that it has authority over the scripture. It just it was talking in terms of its usage, as I would take that quote. Um, and second of all, I was asking for specific references to early church fathers um, that said basically, hey, you know. Tradition has higher authority than scripture, or even equal. Just say equal oh, authority. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I might have misspoken earlier. I am, I am not saying that tradition has higher authority than, than scripture. Okay, that, well, that I, isn't I, what I, I was I saying. What that. I'm talking about, again, I, I'm, I'm still trying to establish just another detail of my original point, that when you look at the early church, okay, the oral, rather than the written tradition, was the most prominent in their usage. I, I, I have no problem granting that. That has nothing to do with uh, Sola Scriptura, though. Okay. Even in the case with, like, Irenaeus, when it comes to settling disputes with heretics, they're appealing to primarily the oral tradition. Well, as and, being and, authoritative the quote I, I, I provided by Irenaeus it seems to suggest that that wasn't the issue, is that they actually weren't using the scriptures. So okay, it seems so, like so I, I don't I don't see though because I I mean I read like two pages from against heresies. Now I understand that that what what you provided it's talking about the infallibility of the scriptures and stuff, but I don't see that that changes what he did say 
in the later chapters of Against Heresies. I mean, yeah, okay, it, it says, kind of seems to be saying something else, but yeah, I, I yeah, don't he, see he that it undermines. He actually says right here, they gather their views from other sources than the scriptures. When, however, they are confused from the scriptures, they then turn around these same scriptures as if they were not correct nor authority and that they are ambiguous and that the truth cannot be extracted from them by those who are ignorant of tradition. For they allege that the truth was not delivered by means of written documents, but a living voice. And so because of that, you know, because they're rejecting uh, scripture, they're not even using scripture at this point, the apostles are then apologetically, the apostles, geez, the early church fathers were apologetically appealing to what they had heard from from Peter and Paul because they they were close by that at that time. Obviously, that's not to say that that if I were a Protestant, I mean, which I think they were Protestants back at that time, um, I would do the very same thing. I would, I mean, you know, when I when I, I talk to an unbeliever um, and they and they say weird spooky things, I try to you know reason with them and use apologetical argumentation. I just don't you know you know constantly appeal the scripture, you know. Um, just repeating it over and over again. That doesn't work in certain situations where people don't grant the same authority issue. And so, given this understanding, then I would uh, I, I would say that that, that would uh, overturn that that uh, understanding that it somehow indicated that it had higher authority or equal authority, or or, or even had um, a predominant use to where scripture was of no uh, use for doctrinal issues. Now, of course, in taking care of critical matters, you know, with the, with the Gnostics, and that would be a different issue. But uh, this is, it seems to me we're not going to have any dialectical progress with this. So let me then say this. And, can I uh, respond uh, one last time? Uh, sure, 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 sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Feel free to respond, and then I'll, 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 uh, I'll, I'll, kind, of, I'll kind of cut this off with a, a word to show why this, this kind of argumentation is futile to begin with in some ways. Okay. My issue, the, the quote that you provided from Irenaeus, I don't see any problem with that for tradition. Uh, it is true that the Gnostics denied or, you know, when they were confused by by scripture that they appealed to a living voice and, and and so on. But the living voice was used by others perfectly orthodox uh fathers in the early church, such as Polycarp. I you you pointed earlier at the those similarities to the Catholic position and tried to say, well, it's similar to the, Catholic, the way Catholics argue, and so therefore Catholics are as, are as wrong as the Gnostics or something. At least that's the impression that the argument you gave gave. And so, but I, but I don't see that. I, I can say something similar to another person, and that, that doesn't mean that theologically I'm as, I'm as screwed up as they are, or because we use similar language that somehow that's a problem. Mormons use very similar language to Protestants on a lot of things. But it would be somewhat illegitimate of me to point at those similarities in language to try and cast Protestants under suspicion. It's just not very fair. People can have similarities in language but still be very different in their actual approach and in their actual application of what they've said. So the quote that you provided from Irenaeus, I don't see that it undermines tradition at all, all it does is, is demonstrate that when it came to the written record, the Gnostics were in error. Now, again, you, you just a moment ago, you talked about how tradition, like tradition overturning the scriptures or being more authoritative than the scriptures, but nobody's argued that. I, I denied explicitly that tradition is more authoritative than scripture. No, nobody's argued that. 
And so I'm, I'm not sure why it comes up, but what it, what it does is it gives the impression that I'm saying something that I'm not, or that the, the quote from Irenaeus is saying something that it's not. It's pitting, again, the, the tradition against the scriptures in a way, and not necessarily I understand that you accept some kind of tradition or that, that you see some value in tradition, but but when you when you're using the word like it's a, a Catholic view of tradition, you're pitting what Catholics think about tradition against what we think about Scripture, and, and that doesn't seem fair to me. It seems like you're uh, you're you're confusing issues there, and you're giving a false impression about what's been said. Well, yeah, and I was I was talking about insofar as what those quotes actually prove. They don't improve. They don't prove that the Scripture. I mean the. Uh, Tradition is on infallible, infallible par on the same level with the scripture, and if you don't grant that, or you do grant that either way, um, uh, if you do grant that, then it seems that okay, well then we're on the same position here. The scripture is above this tradition, and if that's true, then obviously you know then, then not much has been proven here since a Protestant can uh, agree with that, and that's not unique to my Protestantism. All Reformed Protestants hold that position. That's John Calvin cited numerous church fathers. It's nothing new. And another thing that needs to be brought up, too, is I was bringing it up to also show that the teaching of the Gnostics were similar to the Roman Catholic Church to show that the Church Fathers condemned it. That's what the argument I was making. And, yeah, similar language is used, but similar language language refers to things as, as reference points and concepts and so on. And the same concepts that the Gnostics were, were articulating, given that language, indicates that they were teaching something very similar, or uh, or you know, to suggest that this is argument against Roman Catholicism, similar enough to say what the Roman Catholic Church is teaching today is not in line with what the Church Fathers taught. I also give numerous quotes in responding with Scripture, showing that there actually is. You think it's infallible, so those are quotes that do teach sola scriptura. You didn't provide any quotes that provided even tradition was infallible. But look, let's just cut past all this. Let's just okay, that that aside. I don't think that uh, any of this uh, suggests or gives evidence for Roman Catholicism because many Roman Catholics appeal to the church fathers and to various writings and so on. And they think, well, it's earlier to the source, and that means mean that, that you know, this is actually the fresh, you know, genuine teaching of the apostles. Well, because they were like, well, it was close to the time period of the apostles, but it was, you know, taught at the time of the apostles, therefore it's going to be reliable teaching. I don't necessarily think that's true. If you read the book of Galatians, for instance, the apostles were around. And the Judaizers, while the apostles were around, was distorting the gospel, teaching that salvation and justification was by doing things and performing works and actions and so on. And so uh, even in the first century, we see this distortion of the gospel. And so if that can happen when the apostles are there, how much more can that occur after the apostles leave, after they are gone? How much more would we expect distortion and things of that character occurring? I mean, if it happened during the Apostles, we would expect even more of the case afterwards. And that's why, ultimately, citing these traditions from church fathers, it's just a futile enterprise. And that's why I'm with Augustine. Take it back to the Scriptures. Let's see if the Bible teaches Sola Scriptura in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, and Acts 17, Matthew 15. We see that. We see that the Scriptures are, uh, teach Sola Scriptura. So the earliest church documents we have, the best, the Bible, actually teaches Sola Scriptura. I don't. I can't. I can't attest for every way a Roman Catholic can interpret some later writer that seems, you know, epistemologically irrelevant to me, as far as I can say. All right. Well, great discussion, gentlemen. Hagen, I certainly appreciate you calling in. I think. Uh, I think that this discussion will be very helpful. 
uh, for people to listen to uh, down the road, and hopefully we'll um, we'll kind of clear up some maybe some misconceptions. And uh, but it's good good uh, good conversation, Hagen. You're always welcome and free to call in, my friend. All right. Well, thank you for having me on your show, Devin. And thank you, Nathaniel. It was was great talking to you, Hagen. God bless you, brother. You too. All right. Well, very, very good discussion. Enjoyed that. Yeah, indeed. uh, Enjoyed that very much. Let's do this. Yeah, it was a very very, uh, interesting and, uh, I think, uh, nice crossfire interchange, and it's always good to – get that kind of, uh, you know, intellectual back and forth and to see, you know, how, you know, a Roman Catholic, you know, responds to various arguments. And, to, you know, it's it, it definitely is something that, that it keeps you sharp in the issues and uh, prepared to talk about, you know, the things in God's Word and how to defend them and so on. So this is a very, very good time, I think. Absolutely. I, I enjoyed that. I'll be going back and listening to the podcast on that. Let's do this. Let's take a take a two minute break. Let Nate rest his voice for a minute, and uh, what we'll do is, is the phone lines are still open. Love to hear from some more Roman Catholics or Eastern Orthodox or non-Protestant or Protestant. Uh, maybe if you have a comment or question, uh, we want to hear from you. We want to hear from the from the Roman Catholics, especially. Uh, well, I dialogue with them all the time, and. Uh, you know, instead of doing a blog war on posts, let's let's call in and let's talk about it right here. So we'll go ahead and take a two-minute break and be right back. God bless. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One minute apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack... For the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. I'm here with Dr. Norman Geisler. If you've been a Christian long enough, we've all experienced the Jehovah's Witness coming to our door. My question is, are Jehovah's Witnesses a cult? Well, a cult is defined as a group that claims to be Christian, but denies one or more essential Christian doctrines. And there are about 14 essential Christian doctrines. We have a book on it called uh, Conviction uh, Without Compromise. It has a chapter in each of these fundamental doctrines, like the deity of Christ. They deny that. The doctrine of hell. They deny that. They deny uh, the uh, bodily resurrection. Well, there are three right off the bat that they uh, don't believe. So how can you be a Christian when you deny fundamental Christian doctrines? Psalm 11.3 says, if the foundation be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? So you're going to call it a, a building if it doesn't have any foundations left to it, if it's crumbling because the foundations aren't there? Jehovah's Witnesses are not a Christian group. They're a Christian cult because they claim to be Christian but deny Christian doctrines, which makes them essentially a Christian cult.
All right, welcome back to Theology Matters with the Palouse. And let me, uh, I forgot to mention this at the top of the hour, uh, but if you are in the North Carolina, South Carolina area, uh, this weekend, uh, our, my school is throwing the National uh, Apologetics Conference. It's the longest-running conference on Christian apologetics in the country. It's been going on for about 20 years now. And uh, I've actually got a good buddy that came in from a, from Georgia who's uh, joining us at our house and have another uh, gal coming in uh, tomorrow, and they're they flying in and coming in just for the conference, and uh, it is it is such a good conference. Me and my wife have been for the last four or five years, and it just gets better every year. In fact, this, this one actually sold out. Uh, I think there will be over 2,000 people. So it's good to see that, uh, that uh, apologetics is gaining ground and people are starting to get interested in it. I think it's, it's, it's so needed. It's one of the reasons we... You know, we do this show. So we want to get people talking about theology and uh, interested in apologetics. So I'm not sure. They may have some some tickets tomorrow at the door uh, if you're wanting to, to come. Uh, you'd have to uh, maybe call in advance and see that they normally sometimes have uh, a few extra available. So uh, they have a, a few different tracks. I know they have uh, one of God and Culture. And then what was that other one? God and science, and then there's God among other gods. I'm I'm not quite sure what that one is about, uh, but I know they're going to have the team from RZIM there as well. So it, it's it'll be a great time. So if you're in the area, come on out. It's uh, it's a great great time. Two two full days. I know they're also going to I believe have a debate on the age of the earth. I think Jason Lyle uh, from Institute for Creation Research is going to be there, as well as uh, Hugh Ross. And I think they're actually going to do a debate on apologetic methodology uh, between Richard Howe and Nate. You probably know how to pronounce the the, the guy's last name better than I do. Scott. Uh, Scott. Uh, what's his? Scott Olson. What's that? Yeah. Is that yeah. 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 He's going to be there I, was, I wasn't sure whether or not to have the, the Catholic one or the or the Reformed one, which which Scott we're talking about here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the Reformed one. I was, I was saying that uh, tomorrow at the um, Apologetics Conference, they're going to do a whole dialogue on apologetic methodology with uh, SCS professor Richard Howe and uh, and Scott. So that'll be that'll be a good time as well. So, all right. Well, let's do this, man. Let's. Uh, Let's take a look at let's take a look at uh, one of the most well-known Catholic apologists, Peter Kreeft. And uh, see if I can find this here. I just had it. Now I think I lost it. Um, let me ask you this: While I'm looking for this, Nate, one of the objections that always comes up is this denominationism that. Um, as soon as uh, one holds the Sola Scriptura, then you end up with 40,000 denominations, and there's no way to know, um, you know, everybody kind of does their own thing. How do you respond to the, the whole 40,000 denomination thing? Right, right. Yeah, a couple of things are going on there. Two is, and it, oh, I'm sorry, two. One is the uh, issue of disagreement and what disagreement plays 
uh, in us knowing things. If I claim to know Jesus, whether someone disagrees with me, how does that affect me knowing that Jesus is Lord if someone disagrees with me on that? That's one issue with denominationalism. Two is the actual breaking itself and what that indicates for Sola Scriptura. Does that mean that there's problems for Sola Scriptura? You know, because once that come about, you got all of these Protestant denominations, you know, hundreds and millions of some Roman Catholics like to kind of, you know, uh, put on the uh, rhetorical, uh, you know, steroids, so to speak, on that. You know, really let that out. All these agreements. How do you? How can you be a Protestant with all these disagreements and so on? And so, um, yeah, it's interesting. But so addressing this the disagreement issue, people disagree about everything. There's people that disagree about the existence of God. There's people that disagree about logic. There are people that disagree about Catholic uh, religious beliefs. Even there. Um, People hold different views in the Catholic communion and so on. And so uh, denominationalism, there's disagreements in different denominations. But does that mean I can't know something if I disagree with somebody on something? I don't think so, because if that's true, then people disagree with the Roman Catholic Church, don't they? So does that mean that disagreement indicates that the Roman Catholic Church isn't infallible? So you see, if this argument's employed consistently, then we can't really know if the Roman Catholic Church is true, even on the Roman Catholic system, if they think this is an effective argument against Protestantism, because there's tons of world religions out there, and they all disagree, and they disagree with Catholicism as well, and there's numerous Eastern Orthodox rites that disagree with Catholicism. And so there's lots of disagreements, and so if that were to undercut someone's knowledge, you wouldn't undercut everybody's knowledge, because there's disagreements about everything. I mean, heck, there are philosophers that disagree about whether or not they exist. I mean, you get a bunch of crazy stuff, you know, with skepticism and so on. So if we're going to really hold the intellectual feet to one's fire there, then it ends up being that uh, we end up in just uh, just skepticism, including skepticism about the Roman Catholic Church. So that can't be a good argument. Well, wh- what about the, uh, the, the, the fact that um, – well, what was the second objection I listed? I mentioned the uh, disagreements, and then I mentioned the, the – um, Oh, oh, yeah, that, 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 oh, I got it, yeah, there's so much disunity, so much disunity. Um, right. Uh, that, that's important to, to think about, because um, what you got with Protestantism and denominationalism is uh, official ecclesiastical breakage. So you have, you know, we're, we're honest about it. We say, okay, you know, I have a many uh, Reformed Baptist brothers and sisters in Christ, Baptist, Pentecostal brothers and sisters in Christ, and so on. And we, we disagree. And there's ecclesiastical official breakage there that occurs. But in the Roman Catholic Church, there is just as much disagreement on issues. Um, there's liberal Roman Catholics. There's conservative Roman Catholics. Um, I've met Roman Catholics that are pro-choice, pro-life. I mean, just all over the gamut politically um, and in their in their theology. Some some certain uh, rites honor Mary more than others, and they, uh, some honor certain saints more. And... Um, Others, uh, like, are more traditional Roman Catholics and uh, interpret uh, the magisterium differently than the more liberal-leaning Roman Catholics. And so there are just tons of diverse... If you go to walk into one Roman Catholic church you, out here where I live, you get, like, a contemporary worship service. You go somewhere else, wow. you know, you get, like, the you know, the Latin mass. I mean, pretty intense. <laughs> and you go to South Africa and you get syncretism and paganism. The Roman Catholic Church allows that. Tons of disagreements. Wow. The only difference is, is that the magisterium allows itself to be so broad and nebulous that it, f- it facilitates these sorts of uh, disagreements. It facilitates them. And so there's no official breakage, but there's just only unofficial breakage. The only difference you got with denominationalism and the Roman Catholic Church is that there's just no unofficial 
recognition, ecclesiastical recognition of this breakage. It's just kind of we're going to be so vague and nebulous, we're just going to get everybody in the blanket, so to speak, under the umbrella here of Rome. So that is kind of what you got going on there, it seems to me. All right, good answer. We actually have another caller, so if you like, we can go to him. Great. Caller, can I get your name and where you're calling from? Yeah, hi, I'm Peter. I'm calling from Fresno, California. Hey, Peter, you got a question or comment? Well, yeah, um, I'm a friend of Hagen's, by the way, which is why I'm calling oh. in. That's why I'm listening. Uh, here's my, my question. Um, it has to do with kind of a takeoff on what you were just talking about, uh, the issue of denominationalism. It, 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 isn't it the case that denominationalism is fostered by um, the notion of private interpretation? Uh, uh, Peter, right, is it? Yes. Uh, Peter, is um, yeah? Uh, how are you defining private interpretation, just, just for my own, you know, so well, I know okay, let's, 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 I, I don't know. I, I, I'm Catholic, um, and so I don't understand private interpretation. I've read um, uh, McGrath's book on uh, Christianity's dangerous idea, and I didn't get a good idea about what it meant from there. You've heard the term, though, haven't you? Uh, yeah, I, I, so that's why I'm, I'm being kind of a stickler well, about so it. Let's, you know, start not, with, not, let's start with you, and you tell me what yeah. private interpretation is. Okay, yeah, I, just, I, I don't really know what it means, so all I can know if a private interpretation is um, me interpreting something. Uh, obviously, okay. uh, obviously, if I interpret something, it's going to be me interpreting it. I don't know who else would interpret it. And if someone else interprets and it with me, my, I'm interpreting. If you're reading the text, you're the person who has to, has to understand it, and you do that by going from the text to your brain into a way that you understand it. That's private interpretation. Sure. Okay, that seems fair. Um, now, I guess the question then becomes: are, Is it your in your church's tradition? Is the PCA? Again, yeah, that's PCA? right. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. It is is private interpretation a official or quasi-official doctrine, or or how does it stand? Oh, we don't ever talk about we we talk about interpreting things within the body of believers, but there are always going to be uh, issues here because. If depending on what one means by private interpretation, it ends up that everything ends up being private interpretation. Here's why I say this is why I was trying to bring out is that suppose that the Pope makes a pronouncement. I have to privately interpret that. Now, someone can interpret it for me, but I have to interpret them interpreting that. So if someone gives an interpretation, I have to then provide an interpretation of their interpretation. I have to interpret what they're interpreting what they're saying. So, in other words, if, you know, say me and my friend are reading a Bible together, we're in a church together and reading John uh, 3.16, God so loved uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that means that God loves the world and he's going to save, you know, most of humanity and so on. And my friend's like, no, that, that teaches that Jesus is a goat and, you know, he's going to lop off your ear. You know, something weird like that. Well, I have to interpret his statement maybe as being, you know, kind of snarky, metaphorical or whatever. But the point being yeah, is that I have take, to... Let's take, let's take this back a notch. Wait, as as a believer in your understanding, uh, your primary obligation is to read and understand the scripture, right? Yeah, you that's, have that's the correct. obligation I, I, personally to understand the scripture, correct? That, yes, and yeah, that that, that is correct. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, now if you read the scripture 
and you sincerely and good and in good faith believe that your interpretation of the scripture means something. Uh, is there anybody who you have some obligation to defer to if they tell you that that interpret your interpretation is wrong? Yeah, uh, and if someone has a better argument, uh, you know, a better What if they don't convince you? Um, well, if they don't have good arguments, then I'm not going to believe them like anybody else would. Well, okay. Would would anybody, by virtue of, of their position, um, have some kind of uh, authority that you would recognize they have an authority that you have to um, accept their interpretation of the Bible? Well, the only – and this is the issue here, is that, I mean – Yes, obviously there are people in authority over me, and that's assuming that they are more trained and they can um, they can help me interpret it, and, and that they have a better knowledge of the language that's going on there, and so on. I've made a misinterpretation. Okay. There are people over oh, there, there are people over me that allow me to do that. But the issue is, is that okay, so I have to first. Oh, let, let me, let, yeah, let, let, let me, let, let me finish. Let me, let me, let me finish. Can, can I, can I please finish? I was saying. I, Okay, sure, but you, you're, you're telling the monologue. I just want to get maybe a simple and quick answer. Now let let him let him finish the answer, Peter, and then I'll let you respond. Yeah, I'm not. I'm, ask, I'm just asking questions, and I'm just looking for. No, I I, think I, I, I know, but I I want I wanted to give an example to, to show you. I, I was trying to illustrate, you know, an example to try to show you how broad this can go. With anybody, if you choose to, for if you have people, you have to select to be an authority figure to interpret things, you have to privately choose and interpret that they're giving a correct interpretation. That goes with Roman Catholicism and that goes with Eastern Orthodoxy or anything. So my point is this is a broad phenomenon, not just unique to Protestantism, if, it, if, it's, a, if it's even a phenomenon. My point. Okay, so, so is what you're telling me then, as you understand it, that um, you're selecting the person who you will submit to? Is that what you uh, yeah, I, I, I have to privately use my mind to figure out which which worldview and what, what position is correct, whether it be the Roman Catholic Church, Presbyterian Church of America, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Um, and, you know, and, you, and, and, you, and you don't have to don't have to keep you know enumerating. I, I got the concept. So what you're saying then is that you're making the decision about who you'll submit to based upon uh, how you assess the correctness of their teaching. Well, yeah, what else would I have other than these reason and arguments? Oh, that's fair. That, I mean, that's fair. I mean, that's, that's one way to go. Would there be any other ways of, of coming up with a, a, a way of selecting somebody who you'll recognize with authority, other than by the correctness of their teaching as you see it? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, unless there's reasons to think their authority is valid, which you would need reasons for that, yeah. Okay. I mean, one thing, another way you could go is you could go with, with history. You could say, well, which church has the connection back to Christ and and say that since they're founded by Christ, then they must have something that that's author, that's authoritative. Yep, and you you could you could conceivably make that your right, the and way you'd have to use reason. Church, right? Okay. So yeah. now here's my here's my my question. My question then is if you have sola scriptura Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you then always have private interpretation? Does, does that always come along with sola scriptura? Well, uh, 
Well, I would say no. I would say that you you interpret within the community, but there is always going to be an interpretive problem with interpreting interpreters. Well, when you say you interpret them in a community, what does that mean? Means I uh, interpret them in a church where people obviously you uh, ever hear the expression that uh, two minds are better than one. If you have a person checking on you, you're less likely to make mistakes, and so that's why we have. Well, that seems, uh, that, seems re- that seems reasonable. I mean, when we uh, the reason why we ask people or consult with people uh, about our problems is we're trying to get a different perspective on things. So talking talking to other people gives you a different perspective on things, and then presumably that helps you come to perhaps a, a better conclusion because they can see where you're making a mistake and correct that. I mean, that makes sense, right? Yeah, what, it's especially if they're in fact, especially if they have fallible authority over you too and they know more than you. Yeah. But what, what if what if you decide they're wrong? Then 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 it's not like they have any kind of. Uh, in general, they 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 wouldn't. Um, they might they might they, they might they might be wrong. You would assess their correctness against the text, or rather against your interpretation of the text, right? Uh, yeah, that 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 is that's correct, and it would seem that you know, with a husband and a wife, husband has fallible authority over his wife. If the husband taught something wrong, like Jesus wasn't God, their children, the wife would not want to obey that. He has fallible authority, and so the church and the Protestant viewpoint has fallible authority. So yeah, that's what I would say. Well, okay. Now let, let's. Um, the, it, it, it's the case that 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 communities can make mistakes in their interpretation of the text, right? Let me give an example. The PCUSA now ordains uh, practicing an act of homosexuals. Do you think that's biblical? No, I do not. Is that one reason why you're PCA? Uh, that's not the. That, that's not the, the main issue. No, it would be you yeah, know uh, that, one, that one issue. Uh, this that wasn't even the main issue. It was that they they left a long time ago with teaching the doctrines of Calvinism and grace and so on. That would be the main reason why we probably we, they, they they held no longer to the biblical doctrines and enforced them as such. Okay, and is is it your view then that PCUSA uh, is now apostate? No, not every single church. Not everything, but the, but the denomination of apostate. No, no. I, I, I would I would say that there are people in there that probably I, I would suspect are not believers, just like the Roman Catholic Church. Why Why didn't you stay with the PCUSA? What, uh, I was I first of all I wasn't like born in the PCUSA and left it. I wasn't like uh, you know I was you know a non Christian. I became Christian and I'm you know reformed. That was it wasn't like there's this long history of me like leaving it. It, it was. It, it was already bombed out before I even ever got there. The scene. Right. I mean, it, it, look, you're you're saying here to me, and I'm I'm just I'm all I I'm confused by uh, reformed churches of private interpretation. And I've been in these conversations with other PCUSA and PCA members. I'm an attorney. I represented PCUSA churches getting out of the denomination because of the direction they've gone in. Um, yeah. But you're telling me. They bombed out, and you told me the denomination left Calvinist pr- uh, principles. Did you mean that? Uh, yeah, they left certain biblical principles. Yeah, I, I okay. use my mind to. I, I, I usually use my mind, use my mind to assess that, just like uh, Roman Catholic uses his mind to assess the Eastern Orthodox or the Catholic churches over the Eastern Orthodox Church. And when you say they, are you referring to the denomination? I'm referring to uh, the, the, the body, the formal body it represents, and what it enforces. 
I mean, that would be the denomination, the general conference. See, that, that, would, that would be like General Assembly, for instance. Okay, the General Assembly then. And, and they represent the denomination. There may be individual Calvinists, Presbyterians in the PCUSA. Correct, correct. Don't yeah, correct. Reform. There may even be individual churches, but the denomination correct. has left and, in fact, seems to be taking everybody down with it, right? Right, yeah. Well, what's, your, what's your point? Well, I mean, my, my, my next point is going to be you'll recognize PCUSA, of course, as the majority of the Presbyterian uh, world, right? Uh, yeah, the, the uh, I would say the main line. Yeah, the main line. Here's my question, but I really want to get to the question I want to ask is, how did that happen? Um, I would say by people not, not enforcing uh, biblical principles. I mean, uh, you, know, historiogra- you know, in terms of the history of it all, I mean, it would be long to recount it all, but well, why does that matter? Well, did, did, it, did it happen by way of the interpretation of, um, the, ta- of the Bible? Um, I, I would say I, I would say people people disagreed about uh, you know, how to interpret and how to argue about things theologically, just like anything else, like how you differ over the interpretation of as an Eastern Orthodox would differ over your interpretation but, of church history. But the entire Presbyterian, the major body of the Presbyterian Church, is, is, is now basically apostate. What went wrong? Um, I, I mean, I, I don't want to give a history lesson on it unless I see the relevance of it. No, I, I mean it's relevant. It's relevant because what we're, we're we're thinking is that that in some fashion, God watches over and informs the Holy Spirit informs the Church to protect it from from apostasy. I would hope. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, but we have different definitions of a church, which is you're using equivocal the way I would use it. I would say there are members of the. I would say the body of the Church and the PCUSA. So, I would say that 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 official ecclesiastical. Denomination, obviously, the whole is not part of the church, but there are members of the Roman Catholic Church who are a part of the Invisible Church, and part well, of the Baptist Church, and so on. Okay, so now, and so what it seems like is, whatever it was for the Peace USA, there was not somebody there being informed by the Holy Spirit to keep them from uh, keep them interpreting uh, the text properly. I mean, I think that that's we have to agree on that, right? Here, here's uh, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, we're we're not interpreting it at all, and just using like theological or philosophical intuition to, to disagree with certain teachings. And in many cases, in many, many cases, they they rejected the actual. Uh, if, if memory serves, they actually rejected the infallibility of the Bible at many points. Yeah, got, I think got that's about, right. Uh, got about three minutes left, gentlemen. So okay, Peter, here's the real question, Ed. Uh, if you had a if you had a PC uh, a USA member who said the Bible's infallible, and you had a PCA USA member who said the Bible was not infallible, how would they decide that? I would take it by philosophical argumentation, just like anything else. Could they disagree reasonably? Um, yeah, that they that someone someone can know in that case. Um, even though the disagreement, one of one of them, one of the members don't know, but someone can know in that case when there's disagreement. Just like how there's philosophical disagreement over the law of non-contradiction, but people can know the law of non-contradiction. I would say you would know the law of non-contradiction. I'd hope. And, and, but if there was somebody in the PCUSA who had the authority to make a decision, right, wrong, or different, they would you would be able to compare uh, the different versions with the official pronouncement, right? Say that again. Okay, if, if there was some person in the PCUSA who had the um, authority to make a decision about which was right, infallibility or non-infallibility, 
you then have an official position about which one was right, correct? Uh, no, I don't think so. All right, whatever. Let me, let me put it to you this way. When you say that the Catholic Church is as divided as uh, sorry, Protestant churches, uh, do, do you take into account that there are official doctrinal positions that in order to adhere to, you have to, uh, you, you, to, to adhere to in order to be Catholic, for example, abortion. You understand that the PCUSA accepts abortion for the most part, and the PCA yep. doesn't. Okay, correct. Is that the same situation in Catholicism? Uh, yes, it is because um, you would have people. Yes, let me let me let me let me let me let me answer. Let me answer. You're, you're cutting me off. Sure. Let me answer. Okay, I would say yes, there is because the official magisterial documents people interpret them differently, just like people interpret the Bible differently. All right, and my question then is. Would we be able to say to a person who's interpreting these doc- documents as permitting abortion that they were wrong in light of the official teachings of the church? Um, the, the, yes, provided you can interpret that properly, yes. And the person's not going well, to. Is there any doubt yeah. in your mind what the Catholic Church actually teaches on abortion? Uh, not in my mind, no, but I could be wrong about right, that. Okay. It's not infallible. And, there, it's, and it's because not, we have it, 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 it's, not, it, it's not infallible knowledge. Well, certainly you think that abortion is morally wrong, don't you? Of course, I think abortion well, is morally wrong. And you get that from the Bible, don't you? I, I would say from reason and natural law, yeah. And therefore, do you believe that that conclusion is infallible, that you get from the Bible? I, I, think, I, I think that God's revelation is infallible about it, but I fallibly interpret it, just like you fallibly interpret the Roman Catholic Church. Okay. Use your right. fallible mind going to interpret back, it. Going back to my original question... You acknowledge that we could say take a Catholic abortion. We could take a Catholic who says abortion is wrong, and we could say you're not adhering to Catholic teaching. Could we do the same thing with a Presbyterian? If if they were stubborn and people are stubborn, as you know, they they could interpret things differently. They they could claim. But could we say that there's an official teaching of Presbyterianism by which we could compare individual Presbyterians to? with respect to the issue of abortion? Uh, yes, we can. That's the Bible. All right. What did you tell me before, that people can interpret the Bible differently? Well, in fact, is there and people, there an and, and people on, can on the interpret Bible. the magisterium in differently. The Bible, is there an official teaching on abortion? Because you told me a minute ago uh, yeah, yes, that that involved yeah, natural... Yes, right, yes there right, is. All right, all right. Hey, I'll, hold, on, uh, hold on one second. We literally have, like... A little over a minute left, so Peter, I'm going to have to let you go here. Why don't you sign Uh, off? I appreciate the conversation, and next time you have Hagen on, I will listen. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Hey, uh, Peter. Peter. Nate will be on again. uh, He's gone. (laughs) Well, Peter, if you listen to this this podcast, Nate will be on again next week. Uh, So we'd be more than willing to... uh, to have you back on, and you guys can continue the discussion. Nate, take 45 seconds and uh, kind of wrap this this uh, topic up for us. Well, yeah, it was a heated, interesting discussion. Thanks for having me on, Evan. Um, and uh, I, I think that in the end we have to interpret the Scriptures, uh, and I think the person who is a Roman Catholic also has to interpret the Scriptures, and that both do that. And the, the I think the only difference is, is that the Scriptures were written by the Apostles, and we are not to go beyond what the apostles have written, and so that's why I was thrilled to be on here and to defend the doctrine of uh, Scripture alone. 
All right, we're hoping uh, to have uh, one of my former professors on next week uh, to actually dialogue on this issue. I haven't heard back from him yet. Hopefully I will soon. And if that doesn't happen, um, if it does happen, it will be the same topic of Sola Scriptura. Uh, if, that, if he does not decide to do that or if he's busy or, or whatever the case may be, uh, I think we're going to deal with the issue of justification. Is that right? I, th- I think that's right, yeah. All right. Well, Nate, I I appreciate you being on the show, and uh, great job as usual. Appreciate uh, appreciate you coming on the show and defending the Protestant faith. Thank you. Well, blessings to you, brother. God bless you. God bless. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.